That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. If a tree falls, but there's no one in the forest to hear it, does it make a sound? If a great film is made, but no one is able to see it, does it exist? I'm Mick Garris, and this is the Postmortem Podcast. Painters, musicians, singers, or filmmakers, artists can't work in a vacuum. Your work means nothing if it doesn't reach an audience. Today's audiences are increasingly fractured, splintered, divided, and conquered. Movies either get giant releases on thousands of screens at a time, or they are ordered online like a pizza. The millions of dollars it takes to promote a Hollywood film requires the edges to be sanded off to appeal to the widest audience possible. But still, there are independents who can deliver smaller films with bigger ideas than the giant 3D theme park rides that fill the multiplexes today. Film production and distribution are in a state of constant up and evolution. The formulas aren't always working, yet the unique vision can still break through all the clutter and make a giant noise all on its own. Robert Shea is the dictionary definition of independent. He started New Line Cinema in his Greenwich Village apartment in 1967, renting titles like Reefer Madness to college campuses. New Line started to acquire distribution rights to various foreign art house films and eventually wrapped up into producing as well as distributing movies, having phenomenal success, particularly in the horror genre, most explosively in the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. New Line is still achieving great success in the horror world, releasing movies like Annabelle creation and, maybe most importantly, it, though Shea sold and left the company a decade ago. New Line was always gambling, seeking out something new. They were able to cling to their roots and still roll the dice on huge ventures like Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy when no one else dared to take a chance. I directed my first feature film, the timeless classic Critters 2, for Bob Shea and New Line, and have always felt deep appreciation for Bob and his idiosyncratic company. And it's time for you to meet the man who allowed West Craven, Peter Jackson, and many other visionaries blaze cinematic trails after this. This is Postmortem with Mick Garris. How New Line started? You were, like, in Greenwich Village, and you decided to do something out of your apartment, right? Uh, sort of. I mean, what happened was that I was really actually interested in being a director, if I tell the truth. And I directed a short film that, uh, that was quite successful, and it won a prize uh, at, uh, it was called the Rosenthal Competition at, at Columbia University for the, ostensibly for, and a little bit of a, a hyperbole for a uh, best film by a filmmaker under the age of 25, an American guy. But I had to share it that year with a guy named Marty Scorsese. I've heard of him, yeah. <laughs> I did too. <laughs> Actually, I hear more and more about him. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, so that was, that was kind of the beginning, and I couldn't get distribution for the short. And uh, I took a job at the Museum of Modern Art, uh, <clears throat> which was the only job I could find in the film business in New York through uh, meeting Willard Van Dyke through a mutual friend. And uh, Willard hired me to head the film Stills Archive, which was something I wow. knew nothing about. Uh, 
but uh, it was a job, and I was studying to take the bar examination at the same time, so it was, you know, it was as close as I could get to the movie business at that moment. One of the perks was to get invited to all the parties that the film department at MoMA uh, had. At that time, Janus Films had just uh, started a collection of short films that they were putting on as, spe as a special event at colleges. And it was, it was launched at Lincoln Center. They turned down my film, and so oh. I, was, I wasn't going to take no for an answer, supposedly. Although, subsequently, I learned to do that. <laughs> but at the time, I was still kind of feisty. So at one of these parties, uh, somebody was talking to me about this phenomenon of, of, of uh, special events at universities. I said, well, I, I could find films to do it. I just don't know how to get them distributed. And they said, well, you put the program together and uh, we'll, we'll show you how to distribute it. So I put together program notes for them, uh, the first four films, and that's the first uh, I'm pointing out to uh, Mick, the uh, brochure that my girlfriend designed right over there, uh -huh. new films for the new audience, and I became a film distributor, and I put, of course, my films with, <laughs> with in, the in the package, which was the object of the exercise. That's kind of something I did when I was in a band. Our first gig, I was booking this concert with actual recording acts, and booked us to open yeah. <laughs> kind of the same deal well anyhow so i, I and what i did is i found two uh, i was at this uh, party for this uh, czech festival and i found the american rep for uh czech movies and he made a deal with me because i he didn't have any place else to go to take two films uh that i rather liked one by jan yamich and one by jan schmidt and gave them to me for 50-50 for a year for non-theatrical only. And I, so and the idea was of putting together a real program with short films as well as features, including my shorts, of course. And then as I was pointing out, the program notes that we had that were called Seymour, get it? And uh, <laughs> my girlfriend wrote, did the brochure, which I just pointed out to you too. And I got a mailing list of Student Activities Office, and there I was in, on 14th Street and 2nd Avenue as a film distributor. How did your passion for film begin? It's kind of intrinsic to my being. I often think of the luck that I had in knowing what I wanted to do from when I was really at a very young age. I, I suspect you did to some extent too. Uh, but uh, uh, it's just something I always wanted to do. And I, my dad had a 16-millimeter camera, as every uh -huh. dad did, and, and a Revere. And, uh, you know, we made home movies. And then my dad was really, he, he was great because he, he, he never got in my way. He, he actually, in fact, nurtured me. I got involved uh, making money in high school uh, with still photography, doing pictures of dances and uh -huh. demolay things and, uh, you know, and... and, and uh, engagements to my friends, older sisters and stuff like that. And my dad let me build a dark room in our basement. And so I started off doing uh, still photography. And then uh, one day I, he, he wanted me to get into the, gross, the grocery business and he, at supermarkets eventually is where he, uh, he and his brothers moved on to. And uh, he, I worked as a carryout boy, which is a packing boy, whatever they call it, in Detroit, uh, actually on 8 Mile Road. Uh, for one summer. So he, he asked me if I wanted to make a training film for carryout boys. And uh, I did. And uh, it was, you know, with, with, with uh, title cards and no sound and just, and, and no negative. It was just it, uh, color, you know, uh, uh, reversal film in, in, a, in a cartridge. And it was, it was spliced together with, uh, with a little editing the, machine. The that tapes you, and the, the tapes and stuff. <laughs> yeah. 
the film has disappeared, but it was really that really got me my start. And I've, I've, it's just always been, what I, 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 you know, to sound a little maybe disingenuous about it, but I've, I, I really get a kick out of turning other people on. I mean, what you've got to do is be sure that you manage the, the exercise and not turn people off. Right. But uh, that's what I've, that's what really excites me in life. And so movies seem to me to be the most exciting. I wanted to be an actor first. Really? Yeah, but I was smart enough to know. I, this is one of the first rules I learned. you got to know what you can do well and what you can't do well. And I realized that I was a terrible actor. So you let your sister take that part of the game. Yes. That's, I, I mean, letter and letter. She went off on her own devices. But my mother kind of thought of herself as a bit of a, a prima donna, I guess. Uh, okay. And uh, Your mother came from Russia. Do you mother, think uh, that had anything to do with your kind of entrepreneurial spirit, that kind of No, actually, it first may generation. have come from the other side, which was, uh, it wasn't so much entrepreneurial spirit. It wasn't about making money, becoming wealthy or anything. It was about independence. Well, that's a really important point because one of the hallmarks of New Line under your leadership was independence and outside of the norm. You know, you you did not do the easy gambles. Sometimes there were things that maybe were more obvious than others. But are you attracted to the outre, the things that are a little not the mainstream necessarily? Well, let me say I appreciate them, and I suppose that there is a vein of interest and uh, fascination with the outre, as you put it. The truth is, it's, and it's, it's, it sounds very mundane and a, and a bit boring, that was just about the only stuff that we could... We didn't have any money. We started off with 500 bucks. It was just finding out what I thought I could sell and how I could get it as cheaply as possible. And so that was. it was usually the outre stuff that was there. When John Waters sent me Pink Flamingos... Uh, it wasn't uh, because I went looking for it. I just said, wow, this has got some weird stuff in it, and maybe, you know, let me distribute it for nothing. <laughs> Not as much competition to exactly. get hold of it. Yeah. Well, it's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, here I was, a, you know, a, arguably a little jerk in, 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 in New York City who just, you know, somehow got talked into going to law school. And, it, oh, I, and I, what I wanted to do was go to work for Sam Arkoff. This gets back to the independent spirit idea. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, American International Pictures and Roger Corman and Sam Arkoff were my my real idols. Wow. And uh, so I sent Sam Arkoff, who was also a lawyer, a letter saying I just graduated from law school and I'd like to come to work for you for nothing. I'd like to just be an unpaid intern. And he never answered the letter. So frankly, it pissed me off. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, well, I don't need to, you know, I'll I'll do it myself. Having no clue what was really entailed. A lot of people said, you're out of your mind and stupid and you know, don't do that. And the grocery business is there. My dad offered me 100,000 bucks a year. I couldn't believe it. Wow. And, uh, but I, I, of course I believed it because I had no interest in it. Well, the passion is what has to drive you. If you're a creative person, to deny that side of your, your psyche seems to be... I'm not uh, downplaying it. I'm, just, uh, I'm not the guy who wears uh, you know, uh, velvet capes. <laughs> right, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I really do think of movies as a craft. Mm-hmm. That, like architecture is what I've often thought about it, that ha- has a primary objective that's practical, whether it's living in a building or that's entertaining. But that every so often, the really good stuff rises above craftsmanship to art. And uh, so that's a very exciting thing to be in. And actually, I think uh, a lot of businesses and a lot of occupations, a lot of human activity can start off as just being very simple, but have the potential to uh, achieve a kind of artistry. Well, who were some of the people, some of the cinema artists who inspired you as a young filmmaker? 
Lewis Milestone. This is a movie that I saw on television when I was... Uh, I was brought up in the era of television when they had the 12-inch screen, and at the beginning of our, my television career, I had to go to a store on Livernois and Seven Mile because nobody had a television in their house, and you saw wow. they had television screens in the window, in the... Uh, the show windows. She stood outside at night watching shows on television like Howdy Doody and stuff like that. <laughs> but I saw this movie uh, with my dad in our living room when we got a TV, and I broke into tears at the end. It was so moving. My father couldn't even understand why, uh, you know, how, because uh, he, he was a real craftsman. Right. He didn't have, his emotionality was very subdued and controlled. It was my mother who was the hysteric. <laughs> and that's why my sister takes after my, my mother. <laughs> you but, take more after your father, would you say? But you seem to have a very no, much I think a, I, I, a sentimental you know, For the good or the bad, I take more after my mother. But I did get a lot of, of strength and belief in myself from my dad. And uh, maybe not enough humanity, but <laughs> he was a great human being. Any of the rebels at the time of your youth that uh, that were kind of happening? I mean, you well, mentioned I mean, Rebel Martin's Without course. a Cause and uh, the Wild One, you know. Uh, Marlon Brando. Marlon yeah. Brando. I mean, and then working with Marlon Brando 40 years after that, that was oh, quite yes. a trip. But uh, I guess people, people change over time. Well, New Line has found tremendous success from, the, from its earliest times with horror. And especially when the company started to produce it, was horror something you were interested in creatively, or was that mostly a commercial decision? It was something that I felt that I understood because I get scared, I get horrified easily. <laughs> what really interests me personally is fantasy. Hmm. I am a huge fantasist. In fact, when I was in grade school, I put on a a radio production of Invasion from Mars. I had the, the original Wells script in a pocketbook. Right, the War of the Worlds. War of the yeah, Worlds, yeah. yeah. And uh, I've always just loved that stuff. And, and maybe things that you may or may not recall, but there were great radio shows. I was brought up also in the in the real uh, halcyon era of, of radio. And there were shows like Dimension X mm. and Suspense and uh, The Hermit's Cave and uh, Green Hornet, of course, and Lone Ranger, too. But that, that's a different kind of fantasy that doesn't really right. interest me so much. But it's the science fiction stuff that I always loved. And my dad was constantly on my case to be reading classic books, and uh, all I was reading was comics. Mm -hmm. And uh, finally, I stumbled onto science fiction and got completely engrossed in it. My father was delighted because I would hang out at the local branch of the our public library in Detroit. At, there was one shelf where the new science fiction things would, when they came in, and I, when I knew this, I was got a tip that something was coming in that was really hot. Would you know grab it before somebody else took it out? So like Arthur C. Clarke or Ray Bradbury or Heinlein, oh, yes, Robert sure. Heinlein. Well, well, fantasy turned out to be one of the biggest gambles that New Line ever made. Was when Peter Jackson came in and pitched you Lord of the Rings which was, nobody wanted to do the way he wanted to do it. Didn't he pitch it as two movies and, and you told him, let's do the trilogy? Yes, well, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, of sane backstory to that. It's not just some kind of you know, craziness as a lot of people accuse me of uh, indulging in. Oh, it's obviously not a crazy decision. <laughs> well, yeah. it, but it was more than that. Um, Mike DeLuca, who is a, a, a guy that I love and I'm incredibly proud of, uh, who was, came to work at New Line and with me particularly when he was 19 or 20. He was 21 when we were doing Critters too. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was just around then. I, don't, I, yeah. must, I was only 31 or something, wasn't I? <laughs> I, don't, I wasn't much older. But 
Yeah, we used to brag that he, uh, that uh, there was nobody in the company over 30. And then at the end of the time, he was the only guy under 30. <laughs> but DeLuca had, to my mind, gone off on a bit of a creative uh, fancy that was not really uh, resonating with where our company was at the time. We needed movies that were making money and we cared about box office. And it wasn't just a total far out contemporaneous you know, fantasy and inspiration. Right. So Lord of the Rings came in. Weinstein had uh, bought it as thought he was very wise in going selling his company to Disney and uh, and I thought that they it was really a bright idea uh, but Weinstein had it and then he got Sal Zance Sal Zance had the rights to Lord of the Rings but then he did the English patient ah. and it was Peter who brought him heavenly creatures and I knew Peter because he had written uh, one of the sequels to Nightmare on Elm Street, one that we didn't use. Wow, I didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, it was just, it was not a particularly good script. But he had done things like Meet the Feebles and, yeah. and Brain Dead yeah. and movies that were like, you know, 30,000 New Zealand <laughs> dollars or whatever, <laughs> whatever they New Zealand dollars. Yeah. But I mean, I'm, as a pragmatist, you know, one yeah. is also good. However, <laughs> yeah. that wasn't the point. It wasn't so much that I was, you know, trying to hold up the flag of, of, of Tolkien and, uh, right. and, and uh, worldwide culture. I was saying <laughs> we needed three films mm-hmm. that had marketing potential. I would have made five. I mean, it was it, it was the, finally we had something that was you know saleable. I didn't get you know I didn't have Mike DeLuca you know looming over me with the with the, <laughs> the cap on backwards and the, and all that stuff. When it came around to us finally, Mark Ordesky came into my office and said, "Look, Peter is coming in. He'd like to show us the pitch anyhow. So would you be interested in seeing it?" So I mean, it partly as a courtesy and partly out of curiosity, I said. Okay, I will, but it's not happening. And he said, okay, it's just whatever it is. I went in and I saw the thing, and it was really terrific. He had done a, a short video piece with Ian McClellan, and it was very impressive. So, you know, there's lots of stories that come after that, but that was, uh, that was sort of the genesis. Well, the first movies that your company made, New Line Cinema made, were Alone in the Dark, which was a horror film, Extro, and then Polyester, John Waters. Mm. So these were people, you knew their work before, you knew that you were, well, with Polyester, certainly you were going. I knew Polyester, but Polyester was right up my alley. I mean, I, yeah. I, was, I saw Smell-O-Vision when I was here in Los Angeles by Todd Jr., it's maybe even before your time, they actually had to convert a whole theater with giant fans. Oh, my God. And Peter Laurie was in it. It was called The yeah. Scent of Mystery. Wow. And uh, I actually went by myself. I was, I don't know why I was even here. So I've always loved this idea of gimmicks. Uh, what's the guy's name? Castle, uh, William, William Castle. Castle. Yeah, I mean, sure. all of that the stuff. The Tingler and the, all the that. The Tingler, yeah. But here you were able to get the scratch and sniff cards for Polyester. And I saw it with the cards. And there were some rather foul scents that there you'd were, scratch and sniff. Well, Sarah Risher, the dear girl who was at that point uh, good friends with John because she's also a Southerner, and uh, she was our head of production, as it was. We, uh, we nominated her to go to 3M, which was the only company that was making scratch and sniff technology, and to try to get them to make the cards for us. She made up names for, in, instead of the, the number six, which, which was fart or something, she, <laughs> she, she made up this kind of sto- sort of very conservative, uh, acceptable thing that John Waters is a 
you know, a very well-known classic filmmaker. And, and they said, well, does it have anything to do with polyester, the, the fabric? I said, well, you know, to some extent it doesn't. <laughs> so that was... You've got Tab Hunter and Divine and <laughs> exactly. Scratch and Sniff. I just want to see those chemists who were working on the uh, scents that were used on that card to do. But in the world of horror, and um, I want to come back to this because it's kind of the meat and potatoes of what our podcast is about. Um... You don't need stars. You don't need, um, other than maybe the filmmakers uh, themselves in that genre. Was that a consideration, one of the reasons that New Line pursued that genre so heavily? Yeah, sure. Well, because it was what was available. And uh, it also, it was a generation and a, and a society that I had some connection with. It wasn't called independent cinema. That was called underground movies, you may right. remember. Uh, that I mean, the, the real genesis was a lot in the, it wasn't the exact genesis, but New York was a real hub. That whole group of people really came out of New York. So those were the guys I knew. And sure, I, I mean, John Carpenter, when I saw Dark. Halloween <sighs> at, in Milan, I was trying to buy films for our little company. I jumped out of the theater. It ran to their office to try to buy it. Of course, it had been sold already. But I mean, it, that, those were the guys that I, that I knew. When I saw Night of the Living Dead, I'd never had that happen to me before. It unhinged my jaw. I was watching the movie, never seen stuff like that. I mean, it's kind of, yeah, it is kind of porno in the sense it's just things you've never seen before that were kind of forbidden. And that was what we did. We did forbidden stuff, Reefer Madness, New York Erotic Film Festival, yep, yep, yep. Right. Well, what seems to be the biggest change in the perception of New Line maybe started with A Nightmare on Elm Street. Tell me about how that came about, what uh, what Wes's pitch was to you. His pitch was, don't call me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had come to uh, New York with a guy named Mark Forstatter, who was an American who lived in England, and he said, listen, you can't just be sitting here in, in New York trying to find little movies, you know, that you want to really get into the business and really make movies for theaters or, get, or distribute movies for theaters, you need to find young directors. So he took me to meet Toby Hooper, uh, Joe Dante. Mm-hmm. And Wes wasn't available, but I called him. And I said, well, you know, I introduced myself. He wasn't very impressed. <laughs> uh, and uh, and he had just done Last House on the Left, which I thought was the most horrible, I mean, <laughs> frightening, disgusting piece of film I'd ever seen in my entire life. I couldn't believe that I was seeing that, but sort of suggested he was my kind of guy. <laughs> and I uh, called him up and I said, well, what are you doing? I uh, you know, I'm just here for a little while. He said, well, I can't meet you. So he described to me uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. And it struck me what a great thing this was because it was the kind of thing that's in people's psyche and their understanding because every person in the world has bad dreams. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if you know the story about where Wes got the idea, it's from some Balinese dream ritual that he read about in a, in a book. Mm-hmm. So everybody has their own version of bad dreams. But the idea of having a bad dream and the wonder of waking up from it and saying, geez, that was scary, but at least I woke up, to have a dream that you couldn't wake up from and right. it would die in the dream, I loved it. And so I said, well, can you send me the script? And Wes said, well, I was, other people are looking at it, and uh, <laughs> you know, I'll get back to you. And it, kind of, and it took him like nine months, as I recall it, every month or two, he, I Finally, after everybody turned it down, just like Lord of the Rings, after it was completely dead, or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, another one, they finally said, I'm going to send you the script, sent it to us. We had a little bit of money at that time, $20,000 or something. 
but I, I think I optioned it for 5,000 bucks and that's how we got, got going on it together. Amazing. And so the term franchise was not something, uh, that was used in those days, but that became kind of the first franchise yeah, for new we Line. called it lifeblood life <laughs> it's a little, little different the uh, there were, i mean the franchises of course i mean universal had their entire library of monsters right uh, you know the bride of frankenstein and they kept recycling these things and Abbott costello meet frankenstein but the concept of franchises and the understanding that not only is it a, a recyclable copyright but also the marketing monies that are spent which got to be getting bigger and bigger could be used to take advantage of the momentum that the characters and theme had already sold and to bring back more to subsequent audiences. I mean, I was not thrilled by it, frankly. I thought it was not very creative just to keep doing the same thing over and over. And the truth of the matter is, I still think that way. <laughs> but there is something to fragmentism in the, in the equation. And it's still ongoing with the yeah, remakes and, used, and sequels to remakes and all It used to be the subsequent critters. You know, critters yeah. four, five, and six were a little bit long in the tooth. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it really encourages production companies and distribution companies to be a little bit lazy. But, I mean, that's just a kid's way of describing means that, you know, you want to make a living and that's yeah. the easiest way to do it. Well, there's, I would take exception to Nightmare on Elm Street because three and four, you know, you had Frank Darabont working on the script. You had, you know, five or six people on, on number four, but coming up with the most outrageous ideas, they were free to just go anywhere. And that's another thing that's appealing about this genre to me is that you are free to throw your imagination well, fully that, against the wall. That's the fantasy part. I mean, there were things that I can point to. And yeah. uh, for me, the fantasy came out of a, the first in, in Nightmare on Elm Street. One of the, my modest contributions to it was the Sticky Stairs episode, which Wes was not excited about. And we <laughs> shot that the last night, and he didn't want to do it. The camera department were all quitting. They, 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 they weren't getting union wages, and we were not, not going to work past midnight. And Wes finally let me direct that little scene. It was hard. Oh, it was just nice. like action cut. Heather walking up the stairs and the sticky stairs. sinking into the air. Because that was a dream I had, you know, where you get stuck and you can't move. But it was like that kind of stuff. You reach into your psyche that you could still call up to your consciousness and put it into a movie. I mean, how exciting is that? Yeah. That that still goes on. I mean, uh, you look at uh, Chris Nolan, for instance. I mean, it's just that he does it in a very brilliant way. But it is just pulling stuff out of you know, out of fantasy land. Well, and movies are images, you know, they're ideas, they can be stories, they can be all these things, but they're not, they're limitless in where you can take them. Which is what's the exciting thing about it. I mean, radio was too, but as I said, I was really weaned on my fantasy uh, from radio. An enormous catalyst to imagination, enormous. I will always be indebted to you because you were the first guy to offer me a greenlit feature as a director. And... It was, you know, please rewrite it the way you'd, you see it and all of that. And that opportunity was so great. At the time I was writing for Steven Spielberg, you had had some success with the first Critters. And I always had the feeling that because Critters was sort of a Spielbergian movie, that that might have been one of the reasons I was brought in was because I was in the Spielberg camp. Well, that was definitely a reason that you knew how to, you know, you, you knew what to do with the camera and you had some good imagination. When we first met, I don't exactly remember the circumstances, but I mean, there was kind of a personal connection. I really felt like, uh, you know, you were a kindred spirit. You weren't too highfalutin. And, <laughs> That's and, for sure. 
<laughs> and so that was, that, but certainly, yeah, cachet, anything you could put in a resume. Well, it was a great opportunity for me. And the movie was a financial disaster that now is much more popular and plays festivals and all. And it was an opportunity. And, and I was really grateful. And, I, and when Freddy's Nightmares came along, uh, I, I did the one after Toby Hooper did and had a blast with that. And I wanted you to be the priest in that. Mm -hmm. And I remember very distinctly on the day you were the priest at this funeral in Freddy's Nightmares, uh, I asked you, you know, uh, if you, how you were able to make the time to do it because this was a very busy time for the studio. And you said, well, I want to watch. I want to watch the, um, and because I'm, I want to try my hand at directing. And this was shortly before Book of Love. Mm. So tell me a little bit about that experience of your first feature film as a director because you own the f company. <laughs> well, that's, and that, believe me, has been a burden and a benefit in equal measure. In fact, when the reviews for that movie came out, most of the pictures in the reviews didn't have a production still from the movie. They had a production still of me behind yeah. the camera because I don't know where this guy gets off. He thinks he's supposed to be a director. He's head of the company, and, you know, it's just another vanity production. So that's always been a, a big bugaboo for me. I do want to back up for a moment because I think I never told you this story, that we were trying desperately to raise some money from a, a pretty significant investment fund in Connecticut or somewhere. And uh, we were getting close to actually raising a few million bucks. And Critters 2 was opening in, uh, in Los Angeles. And oh, he no. invited me to have dinner with him. So I said, I'm going to take you. We're going to have dinner. It was on Sunset. And then we're going to go to the Hollywood cinema. Oh, no. And, you know, this is the first movie was a big success. And this is good. And this is the sequel. And it's going to be, I, I just can't wait. I can't wait for you to walk in. Ouch. And, and, and uh, we had dinner at a little French restaurant on Sunset. And we drive over to uh, Hollywood Boulevard. And I checked my watch because I was sure that this was a showtime. Right. And there was like seven people who had just bought tickets. <laughs> so I said, listen, it's going to be great. You can't, you, you're going to see people are going to be on their feet up and spotting. We had done that in. test screening. There was, there was, was huge. It was a 600-seat theater. There was about 14 people in the theater. <laughs> Needless to say, the financing it felt, did not progress from I was point. responsible for the lack of a multi-million dollar infusion. Well, I'll <laughs> tell you another story you may remember. Didn't I know? I think we both know who wrote the original draft of that second thing. Yeah. And he came in. That's one of my great script writing stories. He came in, as you said, rewriting. And right. I, I don't really remember the chronology. I think I've got this right, though. And a guy named David, I won't use his last name, who okay. was the writer. A nice guy, and he had just written a terrific script for uh, Arnold Copelson, I thought it was really good that New World was, was producing. And has had a lot of success as a writer and director. Yes, that's yeah. true. But nevertheless, he walks in, I said, well, listen, David, this is really, I didn't, I mean, it was okay. It's, it's, it's not, it's a, you know, it's a good script. So let's just talk about, uh, you know, some of the changes. Do you know this story? No, I don't. This so, is news to no, me. No, you weren't in the meeting. And uh, he looks at me and says, uh, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, we want to, we need some, just some polishing and stuff like that. He said, uh, no, you, you don't get it. I nailed it. <laughs> I said, well, what do you mean he nailed it? I said, I'm, it's, I'm not doing any more work. He said, I'm this done. Is, this is perfect. You know, this is, this is the script, man. This is just absolutely, I said, well, listen, 
<laughs> this is it's kind of a collaborative effort, and uh, I we don't I actually don't think it was, you know I think it really could use some work. He said, "Well, listen, don't talk to me. I really can't stay at this meeting. If you're going to start giving me notes again, I'm just leaving." Oh so my I said, "Well, God. nice to meet you." <laughs> we didn't talk for twenty years after that. But, Ouch. Uh, <laughs> Oh, okay, I, so you were asking me about Book of Love. Yeah, Book of uh, Love. I had read, it was from a book called Jack in the Box. I sort of thought that my ambitions as a film director, notwithstanding what anybody else may, may want to chime in about, were petering away. And there I was as a, a distributor, like I could have been in the wholesale grocery business almost, except instead of pork and beans, I was distributing you-know-what. I read this book that uh, Bill Kotzwinkle had written called uh, Jack in the Box. And he was brought up in uh, Pennsylvania, Scranton. Mm-hmm. And I was brought up in Detroit. We're almost identical in age. And I thought this was the funniest bloody book I had read in years. It was so wonderful and so great about the teenage angst, again, of trying to find things that everybody could relate to. So, I, I mean, kind of like the way I started New Line, I just kind of didn't think about it. I just said, I want to direct this. And uh, Katzwinkle and I hit it off. We really got to be very close friends. It was my decision. I mean, Sarah was uh, still, I think, had a production. And And this was a coming-of-age comedy. It was a coming-of-age comedy. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, it's funny about movies. And I I should ask you a question in return. (laughs) For a long time, I've thought of myself as an entertainer who understood the, what the, the contemporary tastes and, and what people were going for and you know what the hamburger of the day was in the yeah. movie business kind of thing. And I think that sometimes you miss it. Hmm. But I've come to a conclusion, which I've fought a lot to finally decide on. The best is if you do both these things. You have to either make a, at least make a movie for yourself or for the public. If you can do both things, which you tr- I guess suppose we all try to do, but at least it should resonate for yourself. And as I've joked about all the films that I've made, to the, not that there have been that many, I still get a kick out of looking at them like I, but it's like looking at pictures of your kids taking a bath when they're three years old. You know, I'm the yeah. only one who really says, oh, isn't that adorable? <laughs> that was the cutest scene. I thought she did such a great job, everything like that. And the audience is like, what, what is this? <laughs> yeah, but you, you're a member of the audience, and... and- I think you have to please yourself as as a creator, and in your end of the business, of course, you have to figure out, is this going to be a commercial choice? But your gut tells you if it's something that appeals to you, you, you have to feel that it's got some universal appeal because you're not the only man standing. That's true. You hope that. But there's also the problem of the time it takes to get you to do the things and when projects come up. And in the meantime, generations after generations are unfolding. And uh, I, mean, I just saw a movie the other day that was done by a uh, contemporary millennial it was unintelligible. I couldn't understand. <laughs> right. I couldn't understand the dialogue. Of course, my hearing isn't that great these days. <laughs> right. But no, besides that, it was just mumble. So, do you find yourself in a generational position because you see everything? You're still making movies. You're still selling movies. Do you feel a sense of remove from what's happening with well, the contemporary? Well, but, but getting down to the basic stuff that we were talking about, things that are primal. I think that those many of those things exist. And they continue to exist. But I think they get buried in a lot of, of contemporaneous detritus, really, and social stuff that comes and goes and actors that people like and don't like. And, you know, you look back at, at guys like Bergman or Fellini as two 
my favorites. And then you look at, at Steven Spielberg, who also happens to be one of my real favorites. And I think the guy is such a genius because either he hasn't forgotten what people really like, somehow he's managed to stay within the swim of, of, of contemporaneous life. Well, I think they evolve with the population, or maybe even ahead of it. It's possible, but there are, I mean, Samuel Goldwyn and Jack Warner, these are guys, yeah. you know, who, they just somehow remained kids. Yeah. So there is a, an, an issue about trying to at least making a film for yourself and being proud of what you did. If you make a film that you're not proud of, it really, this is a piece of junk, but I'm going to do it, and then it doesn't work, I mean, that is a, a big strikeout. Time and effort, and it's great fun to be making a film, but it is really bloody hard. And uh, if you think you're just going to sail through it, you're certainly not, unless you've got a $150 million and just people you don't even have to show up for work. To make a film... You really have to think about it. You have to be consumed by it. Uh, you have to have the ecstasy and the, and the, uh, and the agony of, of not figuring out what to do or missing a shot. And, and a minimum 12-hour day, and you've got right. all of the pressures that are on you. Right. And especially when you're shooting six-day weeks, yeah. and you've only got 18 days to do it. And I yeah. talk that. Well, which brings up a really interesting point. Because of the success you've had running a studio... Selling a studio. Um, I think you've been independent now for almost 10 years. Um, I think it was 2008 that um, you went independent, something Amazing. like that. Um, you are directing again. I just worked with an actor named Giles Matthey. Uh, oh, I, I just directed an episode of Once Upon a Time oh, great. a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about you, and you have a new film you've just made with a very young cast called Ambition. Tell me about that. You could have your choice. You could relax. You could be in Bermuda. You could be anywhere in the world right now. But you've chosen to dive back into those 12-hour days and the, and the pressure. And, and it's a relatively small-scale film, I think. So tell me a little about that and, and your decision to jump back in. Yeah, well, the decision was questionable. It, it really had to do with, with the fact that I was, after uh, I left New Line, we started Unique Features with my partner, Michael Lynn. Being an independent producer, was, I, I, I never really was, in a sense. Uh, we had a company, and what we really were distributors, even though my, in my heart I thought I was a producer and a director, uh, what we were, our bread and butter was distribution. So by the time we were making movies, I had a, an organization around me. But we left New Line and we started Unique. We had no organization, and we had a, a couple of creative executives who were work, didn't work. Uh, my partner's director on a couple of boards. He's a, he's an art collector and he's, he makes wine and all kinds of other things. And uh, just I happen to know him because we went to law school together. That's what the, where the whole connection is. And you can sit in an office and call a few people. You find out, as Graydon Carter so disrespectfully said to me at one time, he said, you know, Bob, I want to warn you about something. When you lose your parking spot at the studio, your name falls off a lot of invitation lists. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that, I mean, that you can extrapolate from that. It's true. People call up and say, yeah, or you call people and say, hey, how you doing, man? What's going on? And, you know, Bob, great to hear from you. I say, we'd like to send you something. 
And I remember back when people whose name I won't insult by telling you, I realize that now that they were kind of expired film executives whom I knew when they were heads of studios and things like that who had gotten fired or quit or whatever it was and were trying to be independent producers mm-hmm. and were sending junky scripts to me that you read one or two of them, you give them to a creative executive, to you give me some coverage, and they say, are you kidding? And they say, I'm sorry, Sam, it didn't work out. Right. And then you just don't take his calls after a while. <laughs> and I saw all this happening. So when this script came in, it was awful beyond words. <laughs> it's not awful beyond words. Now Now it, it has joined one of my children in the bathtub. <laughs> uh, but it really took a lot of work to get to a place where I really believed in it. And it, it but me, what was that, that glimmer that made you think well, that it was worth it? that my very first short that got me going is, was called Image, which is about movies and how do they represent the reality of the filmmaker, the reality as you see it, or is the reality of the character that you don't really know. And it's this idea about leading the audience down the garden path. They think they're being told a story from one point of view, and it, in fact, has been told by another point of view. It's not a necessarily an original idea. The Sixth Sense did it beautifully. Marty's film, uh, Shutter Island, Island yeah. does the same thing yeah. beautifully. So this was a modest acquisition of this storytelling principle, and that's what kind of got me interested in it. And I thought we did a, we put together a really nice cast. I'm going to ask you uh, on camera, as it were. So what, what did Giles say to you? He said he had a great time doing it, that he really loved working with you. And we basically had nothing but nice things to say about you back and forth. And Giles is a wonderful He's actor. He's a great guy. Yeah. And a great guy. And he was on the plane with me on the way home from Vancouver. And that's how I found out that that's, oh, that's, that's what he had done with he's you. A, he's a wonderful guy. And I hope he has a successful career. He's a very good actor. He, he, yeah. He, you know, not only learns his lines, but he does research and stuff. Yes. There's a, he did a wonderful thing. There's a, this is about a woman who wants to become a, a concert violinist. And he went and looked up all the things about violins, which scriptwriters had no clue about, and <laughs> I had no clue about, by the way. And about so when he was in this, this scene where he's taunting the heroine, and he's, he's got, he takes her violin, and he's saying, do you see this? And he, and he starts pointing and stuff. And he had researched what, how violins are made wow. and everything, so he Strong could, he could ad-lib uh, extra stuff to, to give it more verisimilitude. Yeah, great guy. When are you your happiest? Is it making a big deal? Is it being on a boat in the Caribbean? Is it directing? When do you feel that you're no, I, most I, full? When I'm turning people on. That's a great way to end it. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.